Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Dan Klein, my colleague here at George Mason University. He is also the editor and founder of Econ Journal Watch, an online academic journal that critiques uh, other economists and uh, other journals. And we'll talk a little bit about that at the end of today's conversation. Our topic for today is a very broad one, and it is the idea of coordination. Uh, an idea in economics that goes back a long, long way and has evolved over time to mean many different things, and I hope we'll talk about some of those uh, different things, different meanings today. Uh, welcome to Econ Talk, Dan. Thank you very much, Russ. So I want to start with uh, an example that has uh, become uh, somewhat forgotten but brought back to life in different, uh, different guises by other economists. The, the example comes from Adam Smith. It's right in the beginning of The Wealth of Nations, and he talks about the woolen coat. And he says, the woolen coat, for example, which covers the day laborer, as coarse and rough as it may appear, is the produce of the joint labor of a great multitude of workmen, the shepherd, the sorter of the wool, the wool comber or carter, the dyer, the scribbler, the spinner, the weaver, the fuller, the dresser, with many others, must all join their different arts in order to complete even this homely production. How many merchants and carriers besides must have been employed in transporting the materials from some of those workmen to others who often live in a very distant part of the country? And the most modern example of this phenomenon that Smith talks about uh, that is well known would be I Pencil, Leonard Reed's little fable about a pencil's production, which he tells in the first person. And he talks about all the different people who contribute to the product of the pencil. And I assume that Leonard Reed chose a pencil because it's quite simple, uh, just as Adam Smith chose the homely woolen coat. But they were both talking about a kind of coordination. So tell us, Dan, what kind of coordination they were talking about and what's its significance? Yeah, I'd like to think of the whole chain of activities that make the woolen coat or the pencil um, as a kind of concatenation. Concatenation is a word kind of meaning like a chain, a, a, a series of linked and mutually um, complementary uh, activities. <clears throat> so this vast concatenation, uh, we are in the habit of saying, exhibits a kind of coordination in the sense that, um, well, it produces woolen coats, it produces pencils, it produces you know, all the stuff around us. And uh, we get into conversations about the comparative coordinativeness, if you will, of different regimes in political economy. So I think coordination of the these vast concatenations is a way of talking about comparative institutions, about you know po politics and public policy. Um, the examples you just gave up gave uh, gave us of concatenate coordination are vast. They are not enclosed in any uh, plan, in actually anyone's view, any real human being's view. Now, simpler concatenate coordinations take place, say, in a firm where the bosses essentially coordinate. You know, they coordinate, they don't coordinate every detail. They delegate a lot of the details, but they coordinate the basic skeleton of activities. So you can have concatenate coordinations that are more or less planned. Actually, there's a coordinator. And you can have a vaster uh, concatenate concatenations that uh, proceed without any kind of central planning through various spontaneous mechanisms that we talk about. Well, example I like to use, we're taping this on January 30th, and it will air on uh, Monday, the Monday after the Super Bowl. And I like to use the example of Super Bowl Sunday as an interesting day. It's the mm -hmm. 
is I think the number one pizza day of the year. Mm-hmm. I think more pizza is sold on Super Bowl Sunday than any other day. If it's not, it's in the top two or three. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that sells a lot on Super Bowl Sunday: beer and uh, hot dog, hot dogs and hot dog buns, and uh, the makings for chili and all kinds of things that people use to uh, get through a four-hour uh, football game uh, and a in, in, almost infinite length pregame show. Yeah, yeah. So it, the the example I like to use is that if you want a croissant on Super Bowl Sunday, you can still get one. Uh, you walk up to the baker or the grocery store or the bakery in the grocery store and you say, I'd like a croissant. They don't say, what, don't you realize this is Super Bowl Sunday? All the flour has gone to pizza. And you can't have a croissant. Come back in a few days. That doesn't happen. There's always plenty of beer. Um, and we understand that that, that the coordination that is necessary for all the stuff people want on Super Bowl Sunday to be there is is somewhat Marvelous, uh, a word that Hayek would use, because there's a, a lot of people who have to coordinate their actions. But is it really so marvelous? I, I, I want to talk initially about whether that is as amazing as I like to think it is. So is that hard? Why is it? It isn't coordinated, certainly by a central coordinator. In a firm, as you point out, there's a lot of raw materials, say, that might go into the production of something, and the, the head of the firm has to plan to make sure that stuff's around and because you don't want to in an assembly process find you're missing a part or a piece and then you can't produce the good so there's a concatenate coordination that all the stuff has to be there and the parts have to fit together in some ways it's mundane so what's the difference between we don't that's not marvelous no we understand it's important to make sure there's enough stuff around it's in, in your house for example you need toilet paper and tissues and and paper towels and the things that keep your household going. And when they run out, you get you know frustrated and you make sure you stock up enough the next time. And what's the difference between that planned coordination that takes place in a household or a firm and the coordination that takes place on Super Bowl Sunday? Why, yeah. is, it, why is it marvelous? When you get out the microscope and look at each link in the chain, it seems pretty mundane. People you know, pursuing their businesses, pursuing their interests, stocking the supplies, just like you say. Um, it doesn't seem incredible. Um, a term used in the in the book Incredible Bread Machine to uh-huh. talk about some of these things, um, and yet the, the the kind of the incredible thing really <clears throat> is the way all the, ch- the 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 links of the chain work you know work together come together uh, to produce so much for so much of humanity, uh, and that is going on at a vast scale that I think kind of defies our if you will evolved you know cognitive nature okay uh, kind of kind of going on, on on this vast extensive scale which um i don't think human beings are evolved to really under appre- easily appreciate or understand our intuitions i think are more about the concrete the small group you know maybe the hunter gatherer band which our genes come from they say um and so we don't. We have a hard time fathoming the, this vast concatenation of, of links and the mechanisms that hold it together. It's sometimes called incredible, and I think incredible is a good word for it. And one way I interpret incredible is that anybody's attempt to say they know this vast concatenation or to really know in any detailed way how it works would not be credible. You know, like we we see a super athlete, uh, you know, on, on the floor of the basketball arena, do some incredible things. And we just are, are, are really wowed by it. And in a sense, what does it mean to say that was incredible? It means that any description of how it happened is not credible. It's like it's it, it can't really be explained. It's like it's beyond our, our sort of articulate knowledge. And that's an important point. And, and one of the reasons why it's so important to dwell on the incredibleness if if these concatenations of society is not really knowable and explainable, it's not likely that it's beneficially manipulatable, right? Um, so so um, I do think there's a, a very important, incredible aspect to uh, the production of everything that gets produced on Super Bowl Sunday and other days, um, and, and we shouldn't take it for granted. And we should dwell on it, and we should think about what it tells us about uh, policy and politics. 
Now, what it tells us may not be something we can run with in all that rich, uh, research-oriented way, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't remain really important. Well, let's let's delve into that. I, w I want to come to the policy and the politics a little bit later. Let, let's delve a little bit into the claim you made of, of this uh, web of interactions that produces, say, pizza on Super Bowl Sunday alongside hot dog buns and croissants and other uh, things that use flour, plus the, as you say, the, the 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 zillions of other things that are that are still in the store. It's not like, I mean, it, it really could be the case. We we totally take it for granted, as you point out, but it really could be the case. You could walk into the store on Sunday, uh, on Super Bowl Sunday in the morning, and they they'd be sold out because, well, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Everybody there, you know, people have a lot of parties. Of course, there's nothing here, or they could say. Well, we have tons of pizza and beer and the things that, that people use for a party. But, but of course, you can't get uh, um, chicken uh, soup on Super Bowl Sunday because people don't eat that on Super Bowl Sunday traditionally. And therefore, we're out. Uh, all the soup uh, aisles would, would be would – the shelves would be empty. And that doesn't happen either. We didn't have to mobilize an enormous part of the um, – economy to, to satisfy the unusual spike in demand on Super Bowl Sunday. But I think it's more than that. And I, the reason I think it's more than that is that I want to get at the coordination part of this. You talked about it mm -hmm. as a chain. It, in a chain, you miss a link and it falls apart. Obviously, if there weren't trucks and people to drive the trucks to deliver the flour from the mill to the baker, uh, the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. So and there's a timeliness, and that's, I think, extremely important. That's mm -hmm. often forgotten. Mm -hmm. It's not just that, well, eventually we get pizza. We get pizza on at, at 1.30 and at 3 o'clock when we want it. Uh, it's not like, you know, eventually the economy produces enough pizza. This stuff is on the shelf waiting for us. So how is that happening? Even though it's mm -hmm. incredible, give us some idea of, of the nature of this concatenation, this linking yeah. of, of actions. And why I want you to justify the claim that it's hard for our minds to wrap them around this concept. Mm -hmm. Try to elaborate on that. Um, well, what's driving the, the linkings is is the pursuit of profit and other normal human interests. Um, and you know, it's how do two different links hook up, right? And this brings us to the other kind of coordination, um, what, what I call mutual coordination associated with Thomas Schelling and game theory. This notion of coordination is actually the usage that now dominates in economics. Um, the other older concatenate coordination is, is more or less, um, I wouldn't say been totally forgotten, but uh, when people talk about coordination nowadays, it's mostly this mutual coordination. And here it's that, you know, the supplier and the baker are coordinating when to, when to schedule deliveries, what, uh, what terms exactly they're agreeing to. What shape the bag is. What shape the bag is. How big it is, <laughs> right. Um, all, all these aspects of their sort of hooking up. Um, and this this is a different, I think, a different idea of coordination, but it's going on in myriad forms, um, both within a single, you know, bakery, plus in the linkages between the different organizations making the spontaneous order. Um, <clears throat> and so again, you know, the incredibleness, I think, is to understand that all of these different aspects, all these different instances of mutual coordination are going on, driven by, you know, different human pursuits, um, to get these links to work together that, uh, you know, I, in a free system, I feel, uh, produces what, you know, has to be judged as, as pretty darn good results. Um, you know, I don't know if that really helps to get at the incredibleness of it, but it again, it, it kind of shows the, the, the vastness and the, 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 the many, many things like the Adam Smith passage. You only be, read the beginning, but it goes on and on, and he basically talks about globalization in that woolen coat passage, uh, just how large and extensive this, this, this linkaging uh, goes on. 
Can I say a little bit about Super Bowl Sunday as another? Yeah, sure. Because um, we're going to come back to the incredibleness, but go ahead, say something about Super now Bowl. Now, Super, Sunday. I mentioned mutual go coordination. Patriots, by the way, I just want to mention that. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and we've mentioned now this mutual coordination. And actually, Super Bowl Sunday has been studied um, as an important day of mutual coordination by some economists. I'm thinking in particular of Michael. I don't know how you say his last name. Shwe, C H W E. Uh, he has a nice little book on this and a paper about um, what kind of goods get advertised during the Super Bowl. And he shows that it's more it, it, it's disproportionately what he calls social goods where um, things like maybe soft drinks, uh, styles, fashions, um, maybe computer software programs um, – we're, he argues that the Super Bowl is a very special opportunity where when people – not only that people watch it, okay, but that people know that other people are watching it, that so many other people are watching it. And so people uh, who advertise, uh, manufacturers who advertise during the Super Bowl sort of know that uh, – people know that people are seeing this. And he argue, and that's a kind of mutual coordination, if you will. It's kind of a well. We all kind of have almost a common knowledge that Pepsi or something was advertised during the Super Bowl, and that common knowledge might help provide a kind of focal point to Pepsi being an appropriate or acceptable or maybe a stylish thing to have at your party, mm-hmm. not during the Super Bowl party, but just any party. Right. And so he shows that because of the kind of mutual coordination aspects of everybody in a kind of common knowledge way, looking at the Super Bowl, more social goods are advertised during the Super Bowl. Hmm. It's interesting. I, let me digress a little farther. I, further, I think the... Um some people, I'm not one of them, but some people bemoan the proliferation of choice because we lose that shared experience. Yes. Uh, that, that some people claim, again, I'm not one of them, but some people claim that you know it was better when we only had three channels and everybody was watching a handful of things on television because then on when you came to work the mm-hmm. next morning, we had something to talk about. Well, I'd rather hear about something maybe that I didn't. Watch or you know that yeah. whole ar- argument ignores the uh, impact of competition on quality and but but it clearly is the case that when there is a shared event like that that millions of people are watching and that millions yeah. of people know that millions of people are watching that it does have a uh, it has a different flavor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm I'm based I'm. A fan and, and, and of fra- fragmentation, if you will, of, mm-hmm. of multiple channels and websites and all that. Um, maybe in a, even in a biased way, I am. At the same time, I think that there's a valid, genuine, you know, human value that um, these people are expressing. Absolutely, sure. And, and and it's not something that can be poo-pooed. And and you're right. The the defenses of it might ignore the benefits associated with fragmentation, with multiplicity. But at the same time, the defenders of of fragmentation um, ought to recognize that something real is being lost. Um, And I think a big part of the political conversation really is about such things. It's about um, do we want to have the spontaneous order and this kind of fragmented society and a, really a kind of breakdown of common knowledge, uh, or or do we want to somehow capture a sense of cooperation in politics, in the polity, which I think is a big part of really what uh, political parties are doing, at least the ones we observe here. Well, let me continue the digression and give a different example that I always find um um, unattractive, but is compelling to a lot of people, which is public education. Yep. One of the standard justifications for public education uh, is the idea that that we should have a shared body of knowledge. Uh, of course, what that shared body of knowledge is is up for political grabs once it's in the public education system. It also is. Um, 
not necessarily going to be as a result of that political comp- political force. It's not going to be the shared body of knowledge that would make the world a better place. Rather, it will be the shared body of knowledge that maybe uh, is most preferred by the people who have the power. Um, and I would argue, again, sort of on the fragmentation side. Fragmentation is an interesting word, Dan. I've never heard that used. It, it has a certain accuracy, but it has a negative connotation. It mm-hmm. sounds um, like it's broken apart. But I'll stick with it for now because that's interesting. I, if you have a fragmented school system, you don't fight over prayer in school. People choose. If they want prayer yep. in school, they go there. If they, want, if they want evolution taught, you choose a school with evolution. You want creationism taught, you, cho- you go to a school with, with creationism. But the, the argument for fragmentation is, one, you get this competition. But more than that, uh, you avoid the political dissension that inevitably occurs when you force a single solution onto that. Mm -hmm. So, um, on the other hand, as you point out, you do lose whatever would have been shared, which has some advantages. Uh, But I would argue that most of the things that were shared by our public education system, say in the last 50 years of its semi-thriving, were not particularly important to the body politic or or for creating superb human beings of of a thoughtful nature was rather less interesting than that. Uh, I was taught the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't think my kids know it. Um, hmm. I don't really care uh, to be blunt about it. Yeah. So that shared knowledge has been lost. Other types of shared knowledge are lost as the system fragments politically and and practically into, into more private and homeschool choices, etc. I would view that as a plus, but it is interesting to think about what might be lost there. Reaction? Uh, yeah, the public school system is probably the leading example of uh, this kind of political effort to give a shared experience uh, a common school system, right? Common this, common purpose, common cause, uh, and so on. Um, I think it's it, it's not you know it's about the shared experience and a shared value. It's not necessarily even about um, making more productive or more intelligent citizens. Um, now. I, I have such a strong negative feeling towards this, but re- empirically, a lot of people simply get joy, identity, comfort, assurance, reassurance out of this. Out of? Out of this sense that there is a shared experience, mm-hmm. uh, that there is a, a, an organization, that society is kind of like an organization that um, can kind of mutually coordinate their sentiments and understandings towards certain things which our organization does and does together. Shared purpose. Right. Shared purpose is crucial to to kind of advancing that whole kind of mentality and mythology. Um, And the reality is, is that, you know, you know, I'm like me, but most people aren't like me, and I can't just say, well, their preferences don't count, or, you know, they're they're invalid. And I might argue that they're unenlightened, and, I, and to some extent, I certainly would, but you can push that only so far. I mean, uh, maybe, you know, maybe once when they were young, they could have been enlightened, but, uh, you know, life isn't really reversible, and the fact is that people get all sorts of meaning, comfort, uh, out of out of some of these political projects, what I call the people's romance, um, where it's it's an effort to have a kind of encompassing romance among the people of the polity, um, that people get a kind of uh, something genuine out of that, um, and we can't really you know just throw that out as irrational, throw that out as not counting, throw that out as not. I think the I would convers- just say it's I would just say it's potentially dangerous. Yes, I, I, I want to. Yes, let's 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 not. Let's accept the fact that a lot of people feel this way and that and that and they have a perfectly good right to feel this way. But I want to make sure that our listeners understand what exactly you're talking about. So let's let let's hone in on this uh, as we continue to digress. I will come back to I hope <laughs> incredible coordination, but this is so interesting. Um, what do you mean by the people's romance and and what do you mean by this idea of, of using the polity or the uh, the nation, typically. The nation as a um, organization. Okay. Let's go back to the two coordinations, okay? Um, and let me suggest an interpretation of the concept of cooperation. <clears throat> and those that often gets subsumed as an example of coordination. You want to make a distinction. 
I do. Sometimes. I do. I do want to make distinctions here. And in fact, I want to use the two coordinations, concatenate and mutual, to define cooperation. Suppose we're thinking about um, a neighborhood that cooperates in keeping uh, the neighborhood clean. Suppose we're thinking about uh, a bread factory where the, the workers cooperate in producing bread uh, prof profitably. What I, the way I want to interpret this is that you've got a group of people First of all, you've got a kind of referent concatenation. Okay, let's say the bread factory is this concatenation of activities within the factory, linking together within the factory, kind of like the pin factory, um, to produce bread and to produce it profitably, knowing that profits get shared ultimately with everybody in one way or another. Um, so there's a concatenate court, a referent, if you will, concatenation, and they see they're concerned about the good coordination of that. And then among the people in the organization, they are mutually coordinating their awareness, their understanding, and their sentiments about about contributing to that. Yeah, they're aware that they're part of yes. a team. That's I right. Right. It's not enough just that I'm contributing to something. Yeah. If the other guy doesn't know about this concatenation that I see myself as advancing, we're not really cooperating. Like, it's not cooperate To me, you know, going back to the woolen coat, if you go one link and then a few links down to someone else who never con connect, I wouldn't say that they're cooperating. Okay, they're not, they don't have that mutual awareness. They don't have that, that common knowledge sense of manifest mutual coordination the way um, people who have a sense of cooperating, say, in a factory do. So they're, they're on a, you could say they're on a team, but they're not aware that they're part of a team. Yeah, but, yeah, but then you know, once you start pointing out that they are kind of on a team, you have to point out that they've also got competitors, and I guess that's another sure. team. I mean, they're on different teams it, at the same time, so yeah. I don't like it when Bastiat or Henry George kind of speak as the vast concatenation as an instance of cooperation. It's got myriad instances of cooperation, just that it has instances of competition and many other things. But you can't – and Marx saw this clearly. Marx was actually great on this, and he kind of um, hated capitalism because it wasn't a vast cooperation, and he wanted the economy to be. He wanted the, the, you know, the incredible bread machine. He wanted the, um, the great chain to be a cooperation to be an organization, essentially. Um, so, so I just want to point out a language problem here, which yeah. I think Hayek writes about a lot, which is we don't have a language or a metaphor for this, this experience of non-cooperative coordination That's that right. is spontaneous. So let, let, me, let me give the example that you just used. If there are thousands and thousands of people who whose actions were coordinated that led to the pizza on Super Bowl Sunday, if you took all those people and put them in the room, they could all say, we made that pizza. But we understand that that's not the same thing as a bunch of people literally in the same room making the pizza as a team, as a group, literally exactly. doing the mutual coordination that you're talking about. And Hayek was frustrated by the fact that we don't have a way of thinking about that. And I think that comes back to your earlier point about our brains and, and our genetic shortcomings uh, in, this, in understanding this. We don't have a language. We only have very roundabout and, and inadequate language to describe what it means. For the th We don't have the verb, and we don't have the pronouns that describe that. That's absolutely right. I totally agree, and, and I totally agree that Hayek was like agonizing over that. You see that, I think, throughout his career. Um, but to go back to this cooperation, um, so the people's romance is this urge to find this sense of cooperation. Sometimes it's called solidarity, shared experience, all these political terms that we see all the time. And they want a kind of mythology whereby they see the polity as a kind of organization that literally cooperates. That literally cooperates, right? I mean, it, it, it's very mythological. I mean, it, it's kind of a very lame and pathetic effort in a sense. Um, but it, it, it's a deep 
undercurrent in in politics, and I would say particularly in left wing politics. But it's not as though it's not oh, no, as though it's in right wing plenty too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, you know, supporting our troops and sp- our spreading democracy look, and look look at it. Look at a rally of in Germany in 1935. You see yeah, plenty of it. I it's, mean, <laughs> although you know, Johan, Jonah Goldberg will tell you that was left wing too. Yeah, well, it's a stretch. For me. Uh, well, it's he's got a good point. I mean, it's it's it, it, this left right thing just breaks down. I think that's maybe the main lesson of this whole of that whole investigation. But um, yeah, so so the people's romance is is this kind of um, mythology about the polity as or society as organization, so that these sentiments and yearnings for kind of encompassing coordination of sentiment about common purpose, about a common narrative, common experience, um, and so on. Um, and leaders are playing upon this just constantly, Constant. and so are pundits. And you know, and and I think people play the people's romance card even more than they actually believe it. Um, well, it earns points with the readers. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, and I think you know, I think you're absolutely right, Russ. That people's romance lovers don't appreciate what all's entailed. They don't appreciate the costs. Um, they, and the foregone benefits of the other system too. I would exactly, yeah. exactly, and and uh, it's it's kind of an atavism, I would say, to go back to the evolutionary stuff. You know, Hayek talked about social justice as an atavism, and social justice fits right in with this organizational mentality. I'd say that the people's romance is also a kind of atavism, and it's a kind of penchant that people have to learn to over-subdue, learn to subdue, just like we have a penchant for sweets, which evolution selected for way back when, because the people who, you know, ate up on a lot of sweets had a lot of extra energy on their body, and that helped, to, yeah. that helped them survive the uh, the winter, or maybe helped them go, you know, tackle, the t- you know, outrun the saber-toothed tiger, whatever they were doing, and, and, and so evolution selected a penchant for sweets, which does not serve us now. Where sweets are abundant and, and the hazard is to like indulge that penchant too much. Fortunately, in the case of sweets, we have pretty strong individual incentives to learn to subdue this atavistic penchant. We, we bear the costs of personally. Exactly, but the thing with the people's romance is that it, it, we don't. Well, I want to. I want you to make the case for that. Not, not for that part of it, but for why you view the people's romance as mythological, foolish, dangerous. It's not dangerous. I want, dangerous will come to, but. Uh, let's let's make it clear why you view the let, let me say it differently uh, one way to talk about the people's romance that you're talking describing is people like something bigger than themselves absolutely and i think that's a universal human thing uh there are many ways to satisfy that urge politics is one the workplace is another your religious organization is a third your bowling group is a fourth. There's thousands of ways that a civilized society satisfies those ways. But one of those ways is through political movements. And what's wrong with saying, why, let's act as a group and let's end hunger, put a man on the moon, uh, fight for human justice. All these these platitudes uh, that, that dominate our political discourse, you're suggesting that that's a, a fool's game. Why? Well... Isn't that great? I mean, why shouldn't we all band together and let's solve these problems? It's a good question, and I'm not sure I have an easy answer to it. Um, You know, all of this effort to create common purpose and shared experience, well, it just, it's it's not an effective way of of actually producing woolen coats and so many things we do, in fact, really care about. Um, Just in terms of, you know, the pursuits and interests frustrated foregone, by doing this are tremendous. And those things are fundamental to us really too, and certainly part of our liberal heritage, you know, liberal in the in the real sense of the term. Um, and so what what we get, first of all, are like I think systems that don't work very well in other terms. They might work well in terms of the people's romance, comparatively well. But um, in other terms they do basically almost terrible, I think, basically on just about everything else. Um, and and so that's bad. But at the same time, what's what's often left out of these discussions is that the, it's sort of like a cultural disaster. 
you know, it's it's like to sustain, first of all, this power structure that's going to lead this experience, create the focal points, create, in a sense, the games we have our lives in, you know, the public school system, the roads, the utility grids, and um, the, the, the superstitions and, and notions uh, that, that get promulgated to sustain this whole system are, are just dreadful. Uh, uh, you know, they just fail in all sorts of important, you know, intellectual terms in terms of quality and integrity. Um, so, so I mean, you know, in a sense, I, I want a more liberal society, not so much so, you know, that I can buy woolen coats more cheaply, but so that the culture would be better. It would be less... Um, um, I, I, you know, I don't want the right to. I don't know, the less unsatisfying uh, than it is, well, I'm, and less me, frustrating. I think people would be lost less. But is this a question of taste or a question of reality? So let me give. Let's break it down Good to a question. specific example. I'm, I'm going to pick. Two, I'm going to try to give two examples. I'll start with the first, which is Social Security. Mm. Um, you hear all the time a, a strange phrase to me, but it's not strange to other people. It's strange to to you as well. Uh, in 20 or 30 years, Social Security might have some financial problems and, quote, we won't be able to take care of the elderly. And I hear a phrase like that, and I think, what are you talking about? We're the wealthiest society on earth. Who's the we? Our elderly? What, 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 do, you, what, is that, what do those words mean? Now, they do strike right. a deep chord, obviously, what you're referring to, but is it only the point then – that it's an illusion? Because if it's only an illusion and people are laboring under a misunderstanding that there is a we that's real, because in their mind it is real. When we act via Social Security, we are taking care of the elderly. Uh, are they wrong? Right, they, they, right. You know, they go through life, they feel good about that, they die. And, you know, in some sense it comforted them that it, that what you're calling an illusion. Um, and it's not clear why you want to take that, you know, I mean, I might want to take it away from them because, in the sense that there's larger social costs, but you can't say that doesn't count for that person. But well, but but, but, but I think you're right. The Social Security is another leading example of this people's romance enterprise. It's we take it's us taking care of us, right? It's the social safety net. I mean, think about a safety net. It like encompasses all the the polity, everybody in all their activities. If you go really wrong. You're going to fall on the social safety net. I mean, it's really very, very uh, got this flavor of uh, encompassing, you know, s experience and sentiment. Um, but that's you're right. I mean, the discussion of such matters is degraded, I would say, because it depends. I mean, these this whole project, this whole penchant, you know, uh, satisfying or seeming to satisfy this whole penchant depends on these kind of degrading ways of speaking and so on. Well, I would argue that, that it's more than just an illusion, and it's more than just intellectually dishonest. Um, and I want to come back to a, a fundamental concept, which is, uh, it's in Adam Smith, when he, when he talks about, uh, I think it's the theory of moral sentiments, you'll tell me, when he talks about the earthquake in China and how mm -hmm. you can get more upset about you know a hangnail than you do about thousands of people dying thousands of miles away. It was a pinky, a whole pinky. Okay. <laughs> so, so we like the idea, I think most of us like the idea that we would, we would be deeply affected by an earthquake in China. But the fact is, is that most people are not. The reality is that there is not enough love to go around so that we can love each other. That, that whole, I want to come back to our concatenate coordination idea, if the world really did rely on all of us caring about each other, the world would be in a bad situation. The, the, the power and the humanity of the uncoordinated, spontaneous order as opposed to the designed, led political order as an example of that is that you don't have to rely on love, and which is not – a bad thing. Most people say, well, it'd be better if we relied on love. The answer is, is that it would not work very well. Right. And there are bad people in the world who will use that romance 
to do something other than take care of the elderly. Yes. And I think that is the great danger, uh, the danger of tyranny. It's not just that, as you say, oh, the coats will be more expensive. I can live with that. And that's we do that in our households all the time. We do all kinds of, quote, inefficient things, uh, communal living of various kinds, the, the kibbutz and others. Those have had success at various times because people are willing to sacrifice what we talked about for a shared – some success for a sh- – material success for a shared purpose. The problem is that when you go to the larger body politic, you don't just get a little more of everything and a little less of other things. It, you get tyranny. You get the risk of, 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 of real evil rearing its face. Yeah, um, that, you do get that risk, and, and, and uh, but I, you know, even if you don't get – I don't know what we're going to call tyranny. Are we living under tyranny? No, I we're mean, not. Well, this is not tyranny. It's just a. It's uh, not tyranny, but if you ask some of the people who are in cages on drug violations, they might tell you otherwise. Um, but that's another example, right, uh, of of a pursuit, a collective pursuit. But um, yeah, um, definitely, uh, it, it, it's dangerous, uh, and and I think it's degrading. I, I Adam Smith. Um, you know, Adam Smith's first book kind of kind of suggested, posited that we have a strong kind of love penchant. We have a strong penchant for coordinated sentiment, for sympathy. He called it. Some people today might suggest that it be called empathy. Um, but 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 I see it as as basically co- mutually coordinated sentiment that he was talking about in the moral sentiments, and we have a very strong. Um, natural impulse towards that. Again, I think that makes sense in the light of the evolutionary argument, the Hayekian evolutionary argument, which sees us as altruistic and solidaric in the hunter-gatherer band, not brutish and individualist. Um, well, you know, anyway. <laughs> and, um, and, and, you know, I see the wealth of nations as Smith saying, we have this t- this concern about the impartial spectator and doing good, uh, and and p- some of us realize that it should extend to humanity. But guess what, folks? When we think hard about how these concatenations work, it works out okay just to kind of focus on the local. And so I see Smith as like authorizing this narrower self-interest to be cut loose. Um, so in a sense, he's really starting with the solidaric impulse and then saying, folks, we should now authorize the self-interest because it works better to make the woolen coat. Um, but you're making a deeper claim, which, by the way, we're going to revisit, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks. I'll be talking to Deirdre McCluskey about the bourgeois virtues, which this is obviously going to touch on. But the deeper claim, I think, is that is that cultural claim. And by culture, you mean the fabric of day-to-day life, I assume, and what we feel and see and – and it's really better to take care of your gram- your grandmother than for your grandmother to get a check in the mail and hope things work out sometimes. The, the human – sometimes you want real co- cooperation rather than this joint uh, people's yeah, romance yeah, I mean, cooperation. There's that, that's right. That's right. There's that too. I mean the people's romance version does crowd out what would be all sorts of uh, more meaningful local, That's actually sad. genuine forms of cooperation. What I call club romance, I contrast club romance, kind of like Buchanan's Club Goods, a kind of voluntary club coordination of sentiments, um, w- which Smith was very optimistic about. Uh, I take in particular his discussion of, of religion, where he says, you know, free religion without a state church and without any restrictions and competition are going to produce candor and moderation. He said, and he basically had a vision of, you know, churches competing and each and people coming to have these kind of club romances in their churches. I think he was onto something. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and I'm sure our colleague Larry Yannaconi will yeah. support us on that. Um, but um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's a very real sense in which the people's romance destroys co-op, real cooperation, crowds it out, destroys it, subverts it. It's jealous of it. It, it, it like actually sometimes works against it. I would say almost deliberately. Homeschooling, private schooling, um, you know, basic hostility towards private power, private places, um, shopping malls. Um, private concentrations of wealth. I mean, I see a lot of the antagonism towards Walmart and things like that um, as a kind of jealousy, okay, a kind of hostility towards something else that could be a focal 
source of common experience for people, something other than this, the, the government, the people. Well, the, one of my favorite examples of this, which, I, which I've always enjoyed, but your discussion helps me see it in a different light, a fuller light. I saw this in a book review in the New York Times. I don't remember the book. I don't remember the reviewer, but it, it described the following incident. Uh, Peter Lynch is the um, was the uh, fund manager <clears throat> was the fund manager for the Magellan Mutual Fund for a long time and had incredible success. We could debate whether he was lucky or skilled, but doesn't matter. Uh, people think he's skilled. Not sure, but that's the way people think. And the story is that Peter Lynch is walking in a, in a shopping mall and someone recognized him and ran up to him, pumped his hand, and said, thank you, Mr. Lynch. You know, I was able to build an addition onto my house because of the Magellan Mutual Fund's returns. And the book reviewer told the story in horror because he said, we should be feeling that about labor unions and about political parties, not about a mutual fund manager. And, of course, as an economist with a spontaneous order bent, uh, I'm looking at that and thinking, yeah, that's what's great about Peter Lynch. But people do feel that way. It's mm -hmm. a very strong urge. And they do see Peter Lynch, as you point out, as a competitor <clears throat> to their power and their influence and their source of shared experience. experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you have that story about, uh, I forget, a medical researcher or a medical guy, and someone wrote to him. He felt he didn't achieve anything in life, and then someone wrote to him a letter or something about yeah. how he, in fact, saved someone in his family. But it's so distant. It's not, it's not actually a shared experience. Right. But I guess, you know, you could say that it kind of became one in this individual, in this very individual way when, when they did come to communicate somehow. But, and that's what's going on in the, in the vast concatenation in just myriad, myriad, myriad ways. Um, and we have to learn to appreciate that. I mean, that's what being liberal is really all about. In the classical sense of the word. Yeah, which is the genuine sense <laughs> of the word. I mean, the American liberal terminology is just a fraud um, and so on. I'm not sure if you want to go somewhere else in particular, but... Go where you want. Yeah, what's an interesting part of all this is, okay, so what do we... I mean, when we talk about um, a factory and we think about the owners wanting basically profits, of course, constrained in all sorts of normal, humane ways, you know, we're not talking about rent-seeking for profit, we're not talking about ripping people off for profit, and, and if they did that, in a sense, we would frown on it as coordination, even if their profits were greater. Right. Um, but when we talk about a factory, we kind of have a pretty good sense of, you know, there being people, chiefs, who have a sense of it being better coordination, and we enter into their sense of that, and we kind of know what we're talking about. But when we talk about the incredible bread machine or the, the vast skein of whatever term you want to use for the whole big grand concatenation, what all do we mean? Right? And, and in what way is aggregation going on? And, and so on. And I, I, I want to suggest that what we do, if only implicitly, is imagine a mind able to behold it, even though we cannot. And we're having a kind of conversation about what that mind is like, what that mind would find more satisfying or pleasing. And so when we talk about coordination, we're actually like developing our understanding, you know, not only of what produces washing machines better, but what is more beautiful or should we should count as more beautiful to this mind. And sometimes we're trying to characterize the sensibilities of this mind. And naturally, this is very much a, a negotiation and a groping, and it's always going to be incomplete, and people have different ideas of what it is or what it should be. Uh, and that's kind of what, the, to a great extent, what the conversation is about. Like, what is the maximand? Not like what maximizes the maximand. So that's the difference between efficiency, optimality, social welfare function, all this stuff that's taken over modern economics, and coordination. Because coordination doesn't require a maximand. There's no pretense. There isn't a maximand, clearly. There, there's no pretense of maximized. a well-defined maximand, whereas the others do have the pretense of a well-defined maximand. And I think that's all part of a kind of urge towards scientific status and positivism right. and so on. And, and, and the unfortunate thing, and this is one reason that concatenate coordination fell off the map. It's not only that mutual coordination, which I love, rose and kind of took the day. 
It's also that efficiency, optimality, social welfare function rose in place, the scientific version, uh, in, in, in place of this concatenate coordination, which was prevalent. Uh, Aaron Orsborn and I have done JSTOR, systematic JSTOR research to show that it used to be concatenate coordination that economists meant, but then after Thomas Schelling and game theory, it's mutual coordination. So why did concatenate coordination disappear? Partly because economists kind of glommed on to mutual instead, but partly it's because optimality and so on, efficiency, pushed coordination off the table. Because they couldn't talk to it. That's right. They couldn't talk to it and remain value-free and clearly economic science and so on. So I'm totally mystified by this um, thread of the conversation, Dan. So let, let, me, let me come back to what you were saying when you're talking about a mind and trying to talk about a sensibility and what's better. And we say what mind could comprehend it. Obviously, if you're a religious person, you can talk about the mind of God. I don't think that's what you meant. Uh, I assume what you meant was... That's an interpretation. But when we look at the world around us and we see the uh, extraordinary um, set of choices available to a, an American consumer, and it's not just that there's a lot of choice. It's not that the things just get, get cheaper and cheaper and more and more affordable. It's that they're always available. It's not just that you could have 50 different TVs. You can have it tomorrow. You could have it this afternoon. You can have it in probably about 45 minutes if you have a big enough car to take the TV home in. It's just out there waiting for us. And I think I just one point I don't think we talked enough about is that the, 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 the miracle, the incredibleness of it is that it's not just TVs. I mean, TVs alone would be an extraordinary thing. Designing a production system that coordinated all the different people who had to make a TV would be amazing. But you also get peaches, and you get shirts, and you get haircuts, and mm -hmm. you get software design, and you get every the thousands and thousands of things. But we services. don't get. But we don't get common experience. But we don't get as much common experience. Or we, I would say it differently. I would say we get our common experience in those islands of organization. We get it within our economics department. Say we get it within the factory okay. that we do work in. But but that's but I but the mm. real. The, the real question is this. I, I want to get to this idea of maximand, that, that there's nothing being maximized. This idea that, that how can we look at this vastness and say it's good or it's not good or it's working well or it's not yeah. working well. The way that we economists of this tradition tend to do it is we say, look at look what's all the stuff that's on the shelves. Look how it gets better over time. Look how more and more people can afford these things. And by things, we don't just mean the woolen coat and the and the pizza. Of course, we mean better health care and, and a better quality of life and, and, and everything that goes with that. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean by the fact that it can't be judged by the – normal standards that economists use today? Or what do you mean by the idea of a sensibility about it? Okay. Adam Smith in The Moral Sentiments makes an, a distinction between two types of rules, which I think is very useful here. Um, one type is he calls definite and exact, and he gives the example of grammar, where um, there's kind of pretty clear rules about what you need to do to satisfy grammar, to conform to grammar. And um, criticism of your performance basically really only takes a negative form in the sense that, you know, you fault people for violating grammar, but you don't actually, you know, congratulate someone just because they've achieved grammar, right? In fact, you could turn in a blank piece of paper as a homework assignment and it'll get an F, but it can't really be faulted in terms of grammar, right? Right. <laughs> Right. Um, and so, so he's got kind of the grammar rules, and he contrasts that with um, the rules for sublime and elegant writing, okay, a kind of what Lon Fuller calls aspirational rules, okay, so more of an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Now, this he calls loose, vague, uh, Smith calls loose, vague, and indeterminate. And what I'm suggesting is that much more of our conversation is in this kind of almost aesthetic realm of the loose, vague, and indeterminate than most economists are comfortable admitting uh, because of all their science Pretension. pretensions and anxieties. Um, and now kind of norms and kind of the way they're trained into it and everything. And so, so I mean, 
we have sensibilities about what's better and worse in in music in movies. I mean, when we go to a movie, we have fruitful conversations about why it's good or bad. Critics, and, and here criticism uh, can be positive or negative. You can really right. praise somebody for doing things well. Um, but it, so, but it's not, it, it, and it's not arbitrary. I mean, you know, some movies are just bad, and like everyone's going to say it, they're not going to go anywhere. No one's really going to be forgotten quickly. I mean, they're just bad. And even if their grammar is right, in a sense, they're just not good um, aesthetically um, of course there's differences between us and we're going to like different things but we can argue to more towards some convergence and I think we do when, whenever we really seriously pursue something in beauty or art or whatever culture um, and we talk to others who have likewise pursued and studied it and thought about it and talked about it um, so so there's, it's not arbitrary and it's not this exact and definite either it's this, it's in this realm of the loose, vague, and indeterminate, and 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 I think the coordination fits into that. It's I'm not I don't necessarily want to suggest that as kind of the all-encompassing term for for goodness, whatever it is, but maybe it's an aspect of the all-encompassing goodness, which is a deep kind of never resolved, never fully characterized thing. But isn't the argument of the critics of the concatenate order that you and I romanticize, perhaps? Isn't there criticism that it is unesthetic, that getting and spending, we lay waste our powers? As, yes. As we're, we're said, as Dickens yes. talked about his, so many of his characters having uh, you know, venal, narrow lives focused on the bottom line. Yeah, well, some um, of those criticisms might be sound in, in particulars. But is there a trade-off then between yes. concatenate order and shared purpose that would argue for – um, more communal activity that's coercive? Or let me say it differently. Yes, let me yes, say it differently. I, mean, I don't come down with my conclusions that quite that way. Not, not that I'm necessarily 100% opposed, but um, certainly some people argue that way. I mean, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm yet to be enlightened, but you know, uh, um, yeah. Well, what's your counter? What's your argument to that? What's your counterpoint when someone says that? All you get from concatenate order is a bunch of woolen coats and, and more uh, um, colas and pizzas and and flat screen TVs and that that's degrading. Where's well, the aesthetics? One, one, where's the aesthetic yeah. beauty in that? Well, again, I th I think that once you are able to give up this this penchant for an encompassing official experience, and you and you somehow. Subdue that and and come to a kind of contentment with a more limited form of shared uh, sentiment, cooperation, uh, love, um, and, and beauty shared with others. You know who, who are also appreciating it, friends and and and, and critics and other writers, or whatever. That that uh, you have all sorts of spiritual, of course, all sorts of spiritual opportunity and depth. Um, I mean, I mean, really, it's. I think, I think these people who insist on this kind of encompassing people-wide, people's romance idea of, uh, of 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 shared experience and so on. I think there's a kind of greediness actually to them. I think this is a cultural greediness where you know they want it their way and they're they're prepared, very prepared to use force against people who don't uh, particularly want that and who um, you know. Go against it, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Just the way I see things stacking up, uh, there's way too much of that. <laughs> but but what's the justification then for the concatenate order if it's not the um, the tradi the traditional modern to use an oxymoron the traditional modern mainstream economics argument is that it's efficient. And you're rejecting that. Why? I, I'm more saying this efficiency is not actually that well, as nearly as well defined as they make out. I mean, if you want to do, you know, willingness to pay, consumer surplus plus producer surplus, there's all sorts of, you know, contextual things about what that means in a given case. Um, you know, given what options, given what knowledge of people's willingness to pay over what time span of planning, 
um, given how much reflection by the people, um, and plus the, just the fact that we don't actually, you know, have great measures out there of everybody's willingness to pay for different things. Um, what's people's willingness to pay for the people's romance or what have you? Um, so, I mean, I mean, on the efficiency, if you think of it in this abstract kind of supply and demand framework of consumers and producer surplus, I, I, I just think it's not nearly as really well-defined or exact or definite as they make out. Um, and there's all sorts of issues involved. And all sorts of people studying behavioral economics will tell you about all the inconsistencies and ambiguities and personal choice. People doing things they regret and weakness imperfect, of will. and Perfect information. Yeah. And, and so on, right. Um, so it's not efficient. And we say, so what? <laughs> and, but, but, you know, it's not like I want to throw economics out by any means. I mean, I think I teach supply and demand and I teach consumer and producer surplus. And all that is partly conveying what I think is this larger, richer notion of some kind of goodness. It's you know, it's an, it's it's bringing out aspects of it that really do matter and really should be understood. It's it's not nailing it down into a grammar as much as we sometimes or people sometimes seem to suggest. Um, but it's real. I mean, and, and it brings out all sorts of points about the costs of interventions, which are part of, you know, the, the judgment uh, between A and B ultimately. You know, should we have a minimum wage or shouldn't we? Um, and those models and those ways of speaking certainly help us see some of the costs and benefits on each side. Is that? Yeah, no, it's just an interesting thing. I, I, the way I think about it sometimes, I, I think, as we've talked about here before, a lot of what we do in our classes, unfortunately, I think, is dumbed down graduate economics rather than what a civilized person should understand about the world. And <clears throat> to me, what we're talking about today in, in our halting imperfect way, imperfect way is what economics has to contribute to an understanding of the world. What I think of as what I want my children to understand in, in as they grow up about the world, whether they become economists or study economics or not, I think every thoughtful person should appreciate the concatenate order, what is, what is marvelous about it. And I, I hope we've started to convey the beginnings of that. Um, it's a very, um, very, very interesting subject. Before we stop, I want to ask you. We'll totally shift gears here, unless you want to add anything else about no, concatenate that's order. Fine. And um, I'm good. You're okay. Um, I, I do want to say that I, I think it's important to emphasize that when we talk about the beauty of concatenate order, that we do not rule out these shared experiences. We're not. We're not talking against them, either their importance or their their beauty or their their value. I think about it a lot when I think about. You, the listener, listening to this, you're sitting on on the metro or you're in your car, you're on an exercise machine, you have earplugs on, and you're by yourself listening to these words today, but you're listening with thousands of other people. That's right. Uh, you don't know who they are. Um, you don't literally have that shared experience, and we try to create some of that through the comment section, and I'm, I'm thinking about other ways to do that, but I think these enterprises that are fragmented are the the way to uh, a meaningful real shared experience i hope um but to shift gears uh dan a while back you started a an enterprise called the econ journal watch and i want you to just tell us a little bit about that because it's such an unusual uh academic project so what what is econ journal watch Okay, it's an online journal. Um, it comes out three times a year. It's a scholarly academic journal, I'm happy to say, in any sense of the term. It's got an, an advisory council of impressive economists, including six Nobel laureates. It's, it's indexed by Econ Lit and the Social Science Citation Index. It's peer-reviewed, It's and so on. Um, but. And, <laughs> well, I'm just, I, I mean, it's a very serious enterprise. Um, I'm the chief editor. I've got Bruce Benson, Fred Foldvery, Larry White, George Selgin as co-editors, Kevin Rollins, managing editor, um, and, and some other people helping out on a regular basis. Um, and what the journal does is, I, I guess you could say two things. It, it, it launches criticisms of 
uh, academic economics. Um, first of all, just on an intellectual level of criticizing articles in prominent journals, pointing out omissions, um, irrelevance, um, steps and lines of reasoning that don't follow. And, and um, so it directly criticizes and comments in ways that the major journals no longer do. They've more or less cut, most of them have more or less cut the comment sections out of their journals. And of course, we always invite the commented on author to reply. Very often they do. So very often we have these back and forth exchanges um, and often with you know influential people in the profession. Um, exercising a kind of accountability on what's going on in the journals, um, often just you know uh, 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 replicability issues of replicability of studies and stuff. We've had some criticisms along those lines, um, and we do other investigations of various sorts about the character of economics, about the institutions of academic economics, about whether economists working in specific areas reach policy conclusions. And very often they do, more than the people realize, and more than journals like the Journal of Economic Literature and the Journal of Economic Perspectives tell us. Um, I think those journals fail terribly in that respect. Um, yeah. Um, so, so there's criticism. There's kind of like, not we're not going to play along in the genteel society of getting along and sort of sucking up to the people at the top of the pyramid of academic economics. Uh, you know, maybe it's partly because some of us don't have that much to lose, and we just kind of <laughs> took this alternate track, this challenger track. So, well, there's all that side. Uh, also, I have to say all this comes from, um, I don't know, not that I have to say, but I, I, I should say that it does come from a kind of liberal Smith-Hayek perspective. And so this is also, to me, a way of that kind of economist kind of bringing themselves to the table. You know, they, they haven't really given us, as it were, a place at the table at the elite tables of or, the profession, or, or we haven't earned it. So. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're well, not at the table as much as, as okay, we used to. Maybe be. they haven't. Uh, well, maybe they haven't excluded us. But um, I mean, they. You know, we're yeah, talking in this very. But but there's a kind of groupthink theory behind this, which means it's not a conspiracy conspiracy, but there's a kind of problem. And I see Econ Journal Watch is one way, not the only way. Other things that George Mason economists and many others are doing, of kind of asserting ourselves asserting ourselves in a way that gets us a place at the table i hope at least kind of in my mind and we are like i say engaging people we're engaging the top journals in terms of criticism and we're very widely read i mean or we we email many many economists uh, they get the announcement i'm sure many graduate students are interested to see influentials criticized and these exchanges happening um, I'm hoping that the younger generation, you know, has more of an appreciation for these kinds of um, conversational techniques, discourse uh, techniques, as well as the point of view that the people writing in the journal, uh, I think, mostly represent. Well, I, I think it's a wonderful phenomenon, and um, congratulate you on your entrepreneurship in, in starting it. It's unusual. My guest today has been Dan Klein, Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Dan, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.